I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today. She's the author of Prisms of the People, Power and Organizing in 21st Century America, and political scientist at Johns Hopkins. She is the inaugural director of the Agora Institute. Hari Han, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. You've written several books on civic power, the intersection of civic education, public service, and democratic values and norms. What is distinct about this particular book uh, relative to some of the other books that you've written on civic life in America? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that this book really came out of a trend that my co-authors and I were seeing um, both in the scholarly data, but also just in the um, narratives that we were seeing emerging in the press and the public dialogue, which is that increasingly in the 21st century, it felt like there was this broken link between participation and power so that um, with the exception of the people who are at the very top of the um, income distribution, that the preferences of what the public wanted and what government did were often, um, were increasingly becoming more and more distinct. And so what we wanted to do was look around and say, okay, well, even if that's a pretty well-documented trend um, in many sectors of the United States, what if we were to look at the outliers? What if we were to look at the places where there were groups that actually were able to link the interests of their constituencies into the political influence and political outcomes that they cared about? And then what can we learn? And so I think unlike some of my previous work that um, tried to understand ways in which we can cultivate the civic habits and proclivities that people need to engage in democracy, this one was really trying to understand how you build organizations or movements or vehicles that can translate the engagement of ordinary people into political influence over things they care about. One of the things that citizens care about is the stability of their government or their mm-hmm. democracy. And you've extensively written about and researched civic trends over a trajectory towards democratic instability rather than towards democratic stability. Yes, absolutely. So I actually would start by saying that I don't know if I agree with the first thing that you said, which is that one of the things that people care about is democratic stability um, in the sense that there's so much data that's coming out these days that show that people will actually give up quite a bit. They will sacrifice a lot of democratic norms, small d democratic norms, in order to have their side win. And we see that both on the left and the right. So it's not isolated to one part of the ideological spectrum, that people would rather be right. They would rather win than um, support democratic stability. And I think that in and of itself is one of the crises that you're describing, um, that the fact that we, the, the kind of backsliding that we're seeing is a function of the fact that people are much more willing to give up the foundations of liberal democracy than I think we previously understood. And so the question in a way then is, well, where do where does the work of the kind of groups that we study in this book fit into that? And I would start by um, saying that one thing to understand is that 
democracy is like a muscle, right? There's a set of habits and commitments and proclivities that people have to learn in order to be um, functioning democratic citizens, especially in a pluralistic democracy. And I think sometimes we have this notion that citizens are born, but really the truth is citizens are made. And the question is, where are they made? Well, if we think about it as a muscle, even if we get civic education in K-12 education or um, in the family at home, um, just like going to the gym <laughs> requires a lifelong commitment for all of us to maintain our own health, so too does maintaining the muscles that it takes to sort of sustain a democracy is that we need places where people are constantly invited to understand what it means to engage with people who are different from them, to develop shared purpose across lines of of difference and to figure out how they equip themselves to work together to advocate for what they want. And part of what we found about that was different about the groups that really were successful in doing that work is that they really focused on this question of how do we help people equip themselves to put their hands on the levers of change um, in a way that's grounded in their own interests, but also connected to it with each other across these lines of difference. And that's not, that's all too uncommon in so many of the kind of organizations that we see these days and activist communities that we see these days. And so I think there's a way in which these groups were working in countercultural ways to a lot of the prevailing trends that we see in civil society. When you think of the kind of activations or incitement, encouragement of pro-social constructive citizenship that is the grounding or the aspirational framework of civic life. What do you think, based on your research in this most recent book, are the best and most effective methods to transcend what you're describing, which is allegiance to party over allegiance to democracy? Yeah, that's such a good question um, because it, it's such a timely question because, you know, part of what we're seeing is um, the kind of parochialism that you're describing um, exists in so many parts of our society, right? It's not just about... Um, partisan identities, although that's a very strong identity frame that we have right now in 21st century America, but but so many other identities that seem to dominate the ways in which we engage with each other. And so the question is, how do you move people to a place where they're able to engage um, with people who are different from them in the kind of um, communal, democrat, small d, democratic life that has always been so fundamental to uh, making democracy work. So here's here's what I would say. Um, a couple things that we found in the organizations um, that we looked at is, um, I'm going to start a little bit more theoretical and then I'll get a little bit more concrete. So from a theoretical standpoint, um, one of the one of the phenomenons I think that's so interesting about this moment that we're in is that there's so many ways in which people as consumers of politics have become objects as opposed to subjects of the political process itself. And so there's a great piece that just came out in the Atlantic this past week with um, Ann Applebaum and Peter Pomerantsev, who are both fellows at the Institute that I direct at Johns Hopkins, where they are talking about the way in which that plays out in digital life, you know, that, um, you know, by um, structuring the internet as a way in which consumers essentially give away their data um, to, um, 
you know, have access to the flow of information that we've become kind of objects of um, the broader ecosystem as opposed to subjects within it. And I think we see that same phenomenon, not only in our digital lives, but also in our political lives, that people often think about democracy or politics as something that they consume, as opposed to seeing themselves as constituents within it. And so the first thing that I would say that was common across these groups is that they were thinking very intentionally about how do we create the kind of collective settings in which people are encouraged to become the subjects of political life, where they're encouraged to become not just consumers, but actual agents in constructing and architecting the future that they want to have. And... Um, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, you know, I always, when I think about that, I always think back to, um, you know, my own reason for becoming a political scientist, was, which was that I remember being in college and reading the Federalist Papers and, you know, James Madison writes, um, you know, what is government but the greatest of all reflections on humanity? If men were angels, no government would be necessary, right? And the audacious promise at the heart of democracy is this notion that even if we know that people and humans are not um, inclined to engage in the collective life that makes democracy work, that democracy is about creating the collective settings in which we overcome those kind of parochial instincts. But as um, Anne and Peter wrote about in The Atlantic, and as we have found in so much of our other research in, um, you know, non, in, in civil society, those kind of collective settings have really declined. And so what do the collective settings in which people are invited and taught how to overcome those tribal instincts look like? Well, the first is they're deeply engaged in relationship. And I know that may sound, um, that may sound trite, but, um, it's, you know, it's actually surprisingly rare to find organizations in which people are meeting people they didn't know when they first joined the organization. And too often when they, when they do the, all they're meeting are staff, but they're not building new horizontal kind of relationships. But these are organizations that really bucked that trend. And I should say, you know, this is a trend that we've seen not only in the organizations that we profile in the book, but also in, in organizations like evangelical megachurches, where I've done a lot of research, where, you know, some of the churches that I've studied the most have this whole theory um, that they call this notion that you belong before you believe, right? So, whether, you know, we're a church, right? And whether or not you believe in God, whether or not you believe in our God, whether or not you're atheist, whatever you believe, you still belong to us, right? So, we're still going to wrap you in this sense of community and this um, sense of relationship, even if you don't necessarily adhere to the beliefs that we have. And that notion really flips a lot of common understandings about how politics works on its head. Because, you know, think about the organizations that we see so often. If I'm an environmental organization, who am I going to look to recruit? Other environmentalists, right? If I'm a gun rights organization, who am I going to look to recruit? Other people who are gun rights believers or gun control believers on the other side, right? And so we always sort of think that belief comes before belonging, but what these organizations really found was that belonging comes first. But then the question becomes, if you create this community of, of belonging in the way that we're describing, how do you prevent it from becoming its own echo chamber, right? How do you prevent it from becoming, um, uh, you know, cult-like or homogenous in ways that we've seen can be really destructive? Um, and the answer to that is that it really, that these organizations were all invested in building um, what we think of as bridging ties, right? So they're ties between people that are constantly evolving that actually bridged across difference as opposed to 
um, simply bonding people to the identities that they carry with them. And so it's not that organizations didn't also build bonding ties. They would do that also. And that's, I think, more natural for most people to enter into. But they explicitly thought about how to create all these different kinds of settings where the bridging ties were being formed. And that became the engine of small D democratic renewal. There are certain government or citizen actions and decisions that are landmark in influencing the historical trajectory of either civic engagement or apathy or alienation from the town square, if you will. And now that we are in a moment that is so hotly and highly politicized, you have to anticipate these fissures as well as the potential openings for civic renewal, in your words, for an empathetic learning from citizens. So we've spoken and you've spoken extensively so far in theory, but I want to speak more in terms of practice and decision-making either in the educational community, in in the political realm, or even in, in the corporate or business life of our country that can be a sea change towards a renewal again, against the resurgence of a populist autocracy, xenophobia, nativism, and towards a reunification in our country. So specifically, what are you anticipating in these next six months or a year in terms of decision points, moments in which our country can move ahead with some greater aspiration than the individual tribal needs of of coalitions. Uh, with the passage of the Recovery Act, uh, the rescue plan, there is an unprecedented investment in service. Um, again, when you think of opportunities for either the political or legal establishments in this country to help move us towards that civic renewal, what are you attempting to identify over this next period? Yeah. That's, a, that's, um, that's, of course, a great question. So um, here's what I would say. So the first thing that we have to understand is I think the kind of civic renewal that I'm describing, and this is consistent with what we find in the book, is the first thing to understand is that it's a function of structure and not just social capital. So I think one of the things that sometimes people assume when they hear us talking about things like the importance of relationship and creating belonging and creating these bridging identities and so on is that that's really the form, the work of social capital, which is necessarily informal and diffuse and decentralized. And it is true that the work is um, diffuse and decentralized and often very informal. But one of the things that we find is that it's, a, it's as much of a supply side problem as it is a demand side problem. And so I think people tend to focus on this fact that, oh, humans are inevitably, um, you know, uh, psychologically predisposed to want to retreat into their own parochial selves. And while that is true, the question is, what is the supply of opportunities that people are being offered in order to exercise those democracy muscles, in order to create opportunities across difference? And the fact is, is that if you look at the data, they're surprisingly sparse, right? Most people are not invited into those kind of opportunities. And and that doesn't have to be so, right? It's a question of the kind of structures that we choose to invest in. And so one example, for instance, is that coming out of World War II, when you had a whole bunch of veterans coming home, um, one of the things that the government was concerned about is that, is there a way to knit veterans into their 
public life of their communities. And so Congress chartered a congressionally chartered 501c3 organization called the National Conference on Citizenship. It's called the NCOC. And, you know, this is one of less than 100 congressionally chartered 501c3s. But what they did was um, by creating that imprimatur, having it be a congressionally chartered organization, they created this national organization that had state chapters in all 50 states, as well as sub chapters in local communities across the U.S. It initially was engaged in recruiting veterans and involving veterans in community life, but eventually expanded to really become a kind of civic engine in all sorts of communities across the U.S. um, to invite all different kinds of people um, into that. And what they would do is that people could get involved in local communities. That would get then get aggregated up into um, state-level engagement, which would then get aggregated up into national-level engagement. And so for a long time, every single year as part of their charter, they would have an annual conference in Washington, D.C., where representatives of these NCOC groups all over the country would come and they would gather to think about what they could do together to invest in and renew civic life, right? And so that kind of structure is one that's very common across a lot of historic organizations, but it's much less common now. And we're finding, for example, that like in the evangelical megachurches that we're seeing, they had that same kind of cellular structure, right, where you have these small units that aggregate together into progressive, increasingly bigger units. And it's that kind of structure that enables um, people to feel like even as they're doing work that is very local, they also have their hands on the levers of change in a bigger way. And so it cultivates all the procli- proclivities and creates the kind of incentives that we want. And that's a choice that Congress can make, you know. And so as we think about this, um, these investments that are coming out of the relief bill in national service, I think there's this question of how we think about the structures and the ins- and, and opportunities that we're creating in communities across the United States to um, to, re- to to make the kind of investments that you're describing. Tangibly speaking, again, in the political or legal realm, there are those landmark Supreme Court decisions or legislative victories or failures that have in, that have tortured the body politic in, in the sense of dividing us further. And I'm interested in your perspective from the book and also your body of research broadly on how much of this is a a secular and religious divide. Uh, We understand the blue state, red state phenomenon. If you really were to study it closely, you would recognize that even states that have trended more liberal or more conservative in recent years – They have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who vote the other way, right? And yet we have a system, uh, unlike our mother country in the UK, that does not really represent uh, pluralities in a parliamentary process where you can understand the patchwork of multiple perspectives at multiple times. We are stuck still in this D and R blue and red construct, even though in reality, in a state like Missouri or Florida that have trended very conservative or Republican recently, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of liberals or Democrats in states like New York and California or Illinois. There are also conservatives and Republicans 
in addition to a healthy majority of the liberals or Democrats. So if we understand that there isn't a tectonic shift in the divisiveness and there are just representations that are monolithic, how can we transition towards that more pluralistic representation of the multiplicity of perspectives? Uh, One thing that of course, comes to mind is participatory governance and budgeting as a way to integrate the actual perspectives of, of human beings across that patchwork of philosophy. But but knowing we're mired in this two-party system still, um, often with third parties as spoilers, but not as substantive contributors to the discourse and the political life of our country. How, how can we attempt to achieve that greater multiplicity of perspectives, knowing the construct of the gridlock with two parties? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that in a two-party system, we don't have the um, versus the parliamentary system. Like we, um, you know, in the same way that there's a supply side problem in civil society, there's a supply side problem in political parties, where I think there's a large majority of Americans who don't feel like either political party, either the major political parties really represents them. And so the question is, um, how do you, how do we think about that? So I think there are a lot of um, reform proposals on the table right now that people are thinking about designed to try to um, make it easier for a multiplicity of other kinds of uh, third parties or or other voices at least to become uh, more prevalent within the two-party system itself. And so that includes everything from um, things like ranked choice voting um, to institutional reforms to the way Congress operates um, that, you know, would enable uh, more moderate voices to uh, rise up um, in the legislative process itself. And um, I think that all of those are really important for us to consider. You know, something like rate choice voting would be a fundamental uh, shift in the way that um, we think about how voting works. Um, but, you know, it's really only been a hundred years that we've, um, you know, had voting the, you know, the progressive era a hundred years ago basically also made a lot of tectonic shifts in the way that that voting operated in the United States. And so, Perhaps if we think about the parallels between the turn of the 20th century and the turn of the 21st century, we're at a moment now where we need some of those additional um, reforms to bubble up. Um, But the last thing that I would say about the institutional reforms is that I see them as being necessary but not sufficient. And what I mean by that is that the history of a lot of um, major institutional reforms is that... um, you know, just because we build it, people will not come, you know? So we, it is absolutely important for us to create a system, I think, that allows a plurality of voices to to be at the table. Um, it is important for us to create a system that allows um, a plurality of kinds of people to participate in the system, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the system is going to be used in that way. And so an example of this is that the um, the introduction of primary political, um, uh, primary elections um, at the federal level really came in the early 1970s and was designed at the time to try to wrest control from party bosses, you know, the proverbial party boss that used to make decisions in a smoke-filled back room about who the party candidate was going to be and kind of open up um, the process to greater transparency. So some people thought of it as really a kind of small-D democratic and democracy-enhancing reform. And what we see over time is that primary elections have actually been have actually been become a mechanism 
for increasing ideological extremity because of the disproportionate participation in primary elections amongst more ideologically extreme voters. And so, you know, that's just sort of a lesson that the way that um, institutional reforms are designed are not always the way in which they end up getting implemented. And so it's a both and between cultivating the kind of uh, civil society reforms that, cu- that, that cultivate the kind of democratic proclivities we want in the people and making the institutional reforms on the structural side that we need to incentivize the kind of behaviors that we want. Secular and religious. How much do you think of the after effect or aftershock of Supreme Court decisions that excluded ostensibly people of faith in the public arena, how much of that still reverberates to this day and helps explain the chasm that we face? Uh, Would you say that a significant part of our political problem, which is our civic problem too, is based on the disconnect from those Supreme Court decisions that were specifically alienating people of faith from the, from the public arena? Um, you know, so there's, um, we recently, like some colleagues and I recently ran a survey that was a nationally representative survey of U.S. adults. And this, this is a survey we ran about six months ago. And we asked them, what's the most important organization to you? The most kind of, we didn't use this language, but the most important civil society organization in your life. And what we found was that about 20% of people named a faith organization um, and about 80% of people named a different kind of organization. It could be anything from a recreational, you know, my kid's soccer league to the, my, my, uh, the local school to a political organization or, or something like that or a business association or something. And so I think it is true that faith institutions play an absolutely fundamental life in cultivating um, uh, civic skills and civic habits for sure. Um, but I, I, I think that the distinction between the fight over religious liberties, while it is fundamental, I think it is not necessarily the silver bullet, um, so to speak, because it really, it affects an important, but not necessarily a majority part of our population. Um, now that being said, I do think that faith institutions in general, you know, like, you know, we, in general, like 70% of Americans kind of think of themselves as people of faith and belong to an organized religion, you know, and so we do see that there are large majorities of people that see themselves as people of faith and something that I think the political spectrum, the, the entire political spectrum has to contend with um, in an important way. But I don't know that the the fight over kind of questions of separation of church and state are necessarily the only ones that have driven some of the changes that we see over time. Hari Han, author of Prisms of the People, Power and Organizing in 21st Century America, professor and political scientist at Johns Hopkins and inaugural director of the Agora Institute. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation.